Well, friends, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, you can turn to Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. And as you turn there, Revelation chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, I want to encourage you to think about one reason you should praise God. Just one. One reason that you should praise God. We just sang about the great things that he's done on your wondrous works, Lord. I'll meditate. We saw that, Psalm 145. Just think of one reason that you should praise God. All right, you, you got it in your mind? Think of that one reason you should praise God. I imagine perhaps you thought of a number of things. Perhaps you thanked God, praised God for your salvation. You remember that you were at one time outside of Christ and God and his grace has brought you inside of Christ. He's given you salvation through the shed blood of Christ, just as Kenny prayed. Perhaps you're praising God for safety or the safety of a loved one, right? Whether it's a loved one who's near or a loved one who's far away and you're just praising God this morning that they're safe, or maybe you're praising God for your family, or for answering a recent prayer, or for your job, or the hopes that your job might change one day, right? What, what are you praising God for? And by the way, for some of us, we hear that question, and if we're honest, it's hard to answer. Our, our initial kind of gut uh, reaction is sort of a cynical nothing, Right? What should I thank God for this morning? I don't feel like thanking him for anything. I want you to know that if you have a hard time finding a reason to praise God, that's perhaps okay. It's okay at times when you don't feel like praising God. I didn't say it's okay not to praise him. I said it's okay not to feel like it, right? A significant portion of the Bible addresses seasons of life in which we don't feel like praising. So what we're going to do this morning is we are going to open up Revelation 19, and we're going to see heaven praising God. Heaven is praising God. And for you, perhaps this morning, it may be simply helpful to remember that heaven is praising God even when you aren't, even when you don't feel like praising God. When there's not a song in your heart, there is always a song in the heavens. I want to talk to you this morning about three reasons to praise God. The three reasons that we're going to see are directly from heaven itself. The Apostle John has peeled back the curtain, as it were, and is giving us a glimpse into heaven itself. And in Revelation 19, verses 1 through 10, we see the saints in heaven praising God following his just judgment of evil. It's important for us to remember why the book of Revelation is given to us. It's not given to us just so that we could be curious about the end times. God gave us the book of Revelation so that we would persevere in our faith, that we would walk well with Christ. We're not meant to, merely, to walk away from the Bible with a merely more informed mind, but with a changed life. This book is meant to change you. So as we see the saints praising God in heaven, we're meant to be challenged and encouraged as we praise God on earth. Part of, the, uh, of applying the book of Revelation is building the resolve to follow Jesus no matter what. As we read the book of Revelation, the very last book in the Bible, part of the application of that book on our life is to build the resolve that you will follow Jesus no matter what. 
So personally, as we've been studying this book and we've been going through a political season, I don't know if you're aware, there's, it's an election year this year, maybe, maybe you didn't know. Um, and last week we had uh, Dr. Bruce Ashford from Southeastern come and preach about what does it look like to be kind of a political exile, to walk with Jesus in a political season. As I've been putting those pieces together, I've been meditating on this simple resolve. If every other Christian in America decided to stop following Jesus, I would still follow him. If every other Christian in America decided to stop following Jesus, decided to just ditch the Bible's moral commands and ethical commands and and imperatives, if every other so-called Christian in America decided to stop following Jesus, I would still follow him. My obedience to King Jesus is not going to be determined by anyone else's obedience or disobedience to King Jesus. I will follow him. As we apply this book, we're meant to build a resolve. So, would you... Would you build that resolve that you will follow Jesus no matter what? As the Apostle John opens up chapter 19, he shows us the praise of heaven and helps us to build the resolve to build a life of praise on earth. Look at verse one of chapter 19. After this, John says, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, hallelujah, after this, so we might say, well, John, well, after what? After what? Well, Revelation 19, which in my Bible is given the heading rejoicing in heaven, follows Revelation 18, which is given the heading the fall of Babylon. So we have the fall of Babylon, chapter 18, which leads us to the rejoicing in heaven, chapter 19. So the praise that we're seeing here is responsive to the ending of Babylon, the world system of evil, symbolically represented, right, in Babylon. I appreciated how Dr. Ashford last week pointed out the political background of Daniel 3. And we would do well to remember where Daniel was in captivity. It was Babylon. Daniel was in captivity in physical Babylon. In Revelation, we're seeing the undoing of spiritual Babylon. If you can imagine the setting of Revelation 19 and the praise of heaven, you can almost see the smoke of Babylon in the background. Babylon the great is fallen is how chapter 18 begins. So heaven is praising. Chapter 19 begins. The great world city is no more. All that remains is a smoldering ruin. In fact, Revelation 18 ends with this picture of Babylon. A mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, so will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will be found no more. And the sound of harpists and musicians of flute players and trumpeters will be heard in you no more. And a craftsman of any craft will be found in you no more. No more Pocosin Seafood Festival, right? Crafts gone. And the sound of the mill will be heard in you no more. No more... um, Shipyard traffic, gone. Not just the traffic, right? We could do away with the traffic, but the production, gone. And the light of a lamp will shine in you no more, and the voice of the bridegroom and the bride will be heard in you no more. For your merchants were the great ones of the earth, and all nations were deceived by your sorcery, and in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on earth. So that's what we need to have in the background as we read Revelation chapter 19. Like the moment at the end of the movie where the final enemy has been defeated and the smoke is still rising from the battlefield. 
And the good guys realize that they've won. And though they're, they're bruised up and some of them are bleeding pretty bad and they're kind of limping along, they realize that they've won and they raise their swords and cheer. Proverbs 11 verse 10 says, when the wicked perish, there are shouts of gladness. Revelation 19 shows us those shouts of gladness at the fall of Babylon. Now, it can feel odd, even wrong, to rejoice at someone else's demise, but not so in this case. When Babylon falls into ruin, heaven leaps into rejoicing. So should you, Christian. It is not folly to rejoice at the ruin of evil, the evil that has caused countless sins against you, the evil that has caused you to commit countless sins against others and against God, the evil that is behind that sin that you're still trying so desperately hard to hide from everybody. Evil itself will be judged. This is not a rejoicing at somebody else's mere misfortune, like the kind of rejoicing you get from watching America's Funniest Home Videos, right, which is best TV show out there. But this, rather, is a rejoicing at justice being poured out from the very hand of God. One day, evil will end, and we will rejoice. So John says, after this, after the fall of Babylon, I looked and I heard a sound, the sound of heaven. It seemed to be a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out. Can you imagine what that sounded like? All of heaven praising God. There are two examples that I think of that I've heard with my ears that I think give me a preview or a hint at what that voice sounded like. In 2019, I gathered together with our state convention of churches. We're part of a group of about 750 churches throughout Virginia uh, that cooperate together, the SBC of Virginia. And we gathered together for our annual homecoming. And there were a couple hundred, maybe thousand people in this uh, sanctuary at First Baptist Church, Roanoke. And there were about 200 college students on the stage leading us in worship. And they were singing a, a psalm. I believe it was Psalm uh, 34. I sought the Lord and he answered me. And he go, they go on to sing, magnify the Lord with me. Come exalt his name with praise. And so there I am in that sanctuary and you could just, man, it's just full of the sound of singing. And I looked down and a couple rows in front of me is my good friend Josh. And I knew that Josh at the time, his wife was wrestling through a really tough cancer diagnosis. And so there's, there's Josh, just a couple of rows in front of me singing. There's 200 college students singing. There's all of these people in this room, and Josh has got his hands raised. And I just imagine, man, I bet that's what heaven sounds like. You've been there. I mean, maybe not in that sanctuary at that time, but you've heard the sound of singing that God used to just grab your heart and say, heaven's going to be like this only a billion times better. Maybe it was at that youth retreat when you heard those teenagers singing out. Maybe it was the, the um, uh, young life gathering at somebody's house, and man, they, it, it wasn't pretty, but it was loud, right? And you, you all just sang. Maybe it was that men's group or that women's group or whatever it was, but God has used music and a song to gather you. I told you there were two examples. That was the first. The other is pretty much every Sunday morning when you sing. Pretty much every Sunday morning when you sing. I don't get to see you because I'm on the front row looking this way. I'm tempted, though, to turn around every once in a while, but I get to hear you sing, and it raises my heart. 
When we sing, we are being reminded that God will execute judgment on his enemies. Our congregational songs are like a a preview to the full show in heaven. John Piper makes this connection. Corporate worship is the declaration in the midst of Babylon that we will not be drawn into her harlotries because we have found in God the satisfaction of our souls. In his presence, there is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. Corporate worship is the public savoring of the worth of God and the beauty of God and the power of God, and the wisdom of God. And therefore, worship is an open open declaration to all the powers of heaven and to all of Babylon that we will not prostitute our minds or our hearts or our bodies to the allurements of this world. Though we may live in Babylon, we will not be captive to Babylonian ways. And we will celebrate with all our might the awesome truth that we are free from that which will be destroyed. And so we say with heaven, hallelujah, hallelujah. This word is used four times in this chapter. They're the only places it appears in the New Testament, and it simply means praise Yahweh. So we're going to see three reasons to praise God this morning. And I want to ask you these questions. So will will you give your life to the great pursuit of praising God and helping others praise God? Will you meditate on his works in such a way that it leads you to praise God? Will you lay down your life that the nations will praise him? I'm praying that God would open up mission trips in 2021 for us to get in a car and go. Go, take the gospel to the nations, maybe to Montreal. I know a number of you have been there, maybe to other places, but to get back to the Great Commission. Will you lay down your life that future generations will praise him? Since we planted Catalyst Church in 2012, seeing you has been a big part of what we do. In August of uh, 2019, we were able to move back into within walking distance of seeing you, right? Now, we had no idea what was coming. But I want you to know that because you give, we've been able to steward this facility for CNU. So on Tuesday nights, there's a group from Reformed University Fellowship that gathers in the fellowship hall and uses this building. On Friday nights, there's a group from Young Life that gathers together and uses this facility. On Sunday night soon, there's a group of freshmen from Crew that will gather together and use this facility. Because you give, we're able to make that happen. Friends, will you with heaven praise God? So let's see, three reasons to praise God in our text this morning. Number one, the Lord's judgments are true and just. We praise God for his judgments are true and just. Hallelujah, verse two. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God for his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. So the first reason that heaven praises God is in regard to his judgments, specifically his judgment against Babylon. Heaven sees the holiness of God, hears the, his promises to punish the wicked. They see the evil of Babylon, the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality. Indeed, many in this heavenly congregation had been martyred at the hands of evil men and women. And they had prayed, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And God has answered that prayer. So they rejoice 
they rejoice. Joel Beakey explains, believers will rejoice at the funeral of Babylon on Judgment Day. They will rejoice when Babylon's unholy mix of religion, sexual permissiveness, idolatry, and injustice turns to smoke in the fire of God's wrath. Here on earth, saints suffer much because of the world around them. They struggle with injustice in the world, with the sufferings of the righteous and the prosperity of the wicked. They are tempted by evil, enticed by idolatry, and lured by immorality. Many of you can think of loved ones who used to sit next to you in church, but they were tempted by evil. They've been enticed by idolatry. They've been lured by immorality. That is all Babylon's doing. But, Joel Beakey explains, God will graciously bring his people through all these trials and preserve them through the vanity fair of this world. Christian, one day your struggles will be over, for Babylon will be destroyed. And so we say with heaven, hallelujah. His judgments are true and just. There is perfect justice and unchanging truth in these acts of God. Jim Hamilton comments, when God judges, he does not go against reality. His judgments are right. They accord with what is and what ought to be. There is no lack of evidence. There is no deviation from the standard. There is no prejudice. There is no falsehood. There is no injustice. I'm struck by the fact that heaven uses the word just to describe God's judgment. There is a lot of talk today about justice but not a lot of defining of what is just. And the question behind every conversation of justice is this, by what standard? By what standard? Is this just? Is that just? Is that, by what standard? And heaven reminds us of the justness of God's judgment. Once more, verse three, they cried out, hallelujah. The smoke from her goes up forever and ever. This singing choir wants John, and they want you and I to know that this judgment is not temporary or momentary. This is eternal. Truth and justice can only be measured in light of eternity. Babylon's punishment will never end. Why? Because the infinite majesty of God against whom she has sinned. Think of it this way. Sin will stop being offensive the moment that God stops being holy. Sin will stop being offensive the moment that God stops being holy. So then the question becomes, well, when will God stop being holy? The answer is never, never. You reach as far forward into eternity future as you could reach, and God is still holy. You reach further than that, and guess what? He's still holy. Holy, And in his holiness, he punishes sin. And the 24 elders, verse 4, and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, Alleluia. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you servants, you who fear him, small and great. So we see the eternality of hell's punishment and the eternality of heaven's praises, right? The inverse is always true when you read the Bible. So just as the smoke goes up forever and ever, so will our praise. Leon Morris reminds us, we like to think of a hallelujah chorus in the style of Handel, right? You know the hallelujah chorus. Hallelujah. Right? I could sing it for you, but you don't want me to. All right? 
We like to think of a hallelujah chorus in the style of Handel. It's at the end. It's very triumphant. It's, oh man, the Lord our God, he reigns. Omnipotent, he reigns. And everybody stands up because the song's about to be over, but also because that's the moment where you stand up. But, but uh, Leon Morris explains, John is realistic enough to know that there first must be the equally triumphant rejoicing over the downfall of evil at the hand of God. Evil is destroyed and righteousness is established. We can't sing of Christ the King if we don't acknowledge the defeat of his enemies. As we remember the just and true judgment of God upon Babylon, we ought to consider his judgment upon our own sin as well. We must bear in mind in all this our constant readiness to be corrupted, Morris explains. Every time we're tempted by idolatry or immorality or evil, we should remember the end of Babylon. Let us never forget, as James Hamilton writes, that evil, injustice, immorality, and idolatry will only result in regret. If you do not repent and trust in Christ, your regret will last forever. We want these images of God's justice to be sealed on our hearts so that when sin tempts us, we see smoke rising from the ruins of Babylon. And we know that his judgment is just and true. So we praise God for the Lord's judgments are true and just. Secondly, we praise him for the Lord reigns and receives his bride. Then I heard, verse six, what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. The Lord reigns. Those three words, there may be no more important phrase to remember in the midst of a presidential election. The Lord reigns. Hymn writer John Newton explained, there is one political maxim which comforts me. The Lord reigns. So do you praise God for this? Do you praise God? Jim Hamilton says, Yahweh is praised because he reigns. This means the end of incompetent, unworthy, unqualified government. No more will God's world be troubled by those who cannot rule it. No more will God's world be troubled by those who rebel against his authority, reject his claim on them, refuse to be guided by his wisdom, and trouble those who honor the world's rightful Lord. The Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Yes, he reigns generally now, but there will be a day when he reigns in all authority. Imagine boarding an airplane, having the doors close, and then hearing the pilot announce that as soon as he gets the plane off the ground, he's gonna put his two-year-old son in the pilot's chair. All right, that's the voice that comes through the speakers. How relieved would you be if near the end of that flight, After many dips, dives, jerks, and pulls, the pilot announced that he had retaken control of the plane. Friends, when God begins to reign, the world will finally be ruled as it ought to be. So we may be troubled as we experience the ruin of this world. Let's let's change that sentence. We are troubled as we experience the ruin of the world as it is. But let us be comforted as we remember the reign of our God. We've begun to sing these words. Our rest is in heaven. Our rest is not here. Then why should we tremble when trials draw near? Be still and remember the worst that can come, but shortens our journey and hastens us home. Alongside praising God for the fact that he reigns, 
These saints praise God because he receives his bride. He receives his bride. Yes, he reigns from his throne over every molecule and over every earthly king or president, and he receives his people. He is both transcendent, seated on his throne in the heavens, able to do all that he pleases, and he is near. So Jesus taught us to pray, our Father in heaven. Heaven goes on and says, let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. The marriage of the lamb is a thread throughout the scriptures. Isaiah 49, God refers to Israel as a bride adorning herself before the wedding. Isaiah 50, God uses the language of a marriage certificate to describe his relationship with his people. Isaiah 54, he tells Israel to fear not for your maker is your husband. In Ezekiel 16, the Lord speaks of how he loved Israel as a bridegroom. In Hosea 2, the Lord speaks in no uncertain terms, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. Lest we think that this language is limited to the Old Testament, Jesus explained that his disciples didn't fast because he, the bridegroom, was with them, Matthew 9. He told parables about the kingdom of heaven being like a wedding feast, Matthew 22, about being ready for his coming as a bridegroom, Matthew 25. John the Baptist said his joy was that of the friend of the bridegroom, which was complete because the bridegroom had come, John 3. So here's the question. Do you think of your relationship with Christ this way? Do you think of your relationship of, with Christ this way? The day of the wedding, the anticipation that your bridegroom is coming. When Lauren and I got married, there, we have a, a video, and um, uh, I went to the front of the, the, um, the sanctuary, as the groom is supposed to do, uh, and I was waiting for the moment when the doors would open. Um, and I don't remember this, but the video gives it uh, evidence that it is true that I stood there with my hands in my pockets. Uh, now, just a pro tip, guys, don't put your hands in your pockets, right? The, he says in retrospect. But there I am. I'm, I'm comfortable. I'm waiting for Lauren to come, right? Standing at the front of the sanctuary. And in the video, all you can hear at that moment is a, a little old lady sitting on one of the front pews saying, Jeff, 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 get your hands out of your pockets. Jeff, get your hands out. Jeff, I'm surprised she didn't come up and take my hands out of my pockets based on the uh, uh, vigor in her voice. Uh, but do you, right, are, do you see yourself as standing at the front of the, uh, uh, getting ready for the day? Your bridegroom is coming. I realize the image is backwards there, right? But John says that now the marriage that the rest of this Bible has pointed to and longed for and built up towards is finally and fully here. The pieces are all in place. The day of coordinator has gotten all of the groomsmen and bridesmaids lined up, which is a miracle in and of itself, right? The doors have swung open. The bride is going to make her way down the aisle. Does this cause you to rejoice do you see your relationship with Christ this way? Let us rejoice and exalt and give him glory. Is it the response of heaven? Is it your response? Let me ask you the same question a different way. Are you ready for this wedding? Are you ready for this wedding? John explains, for the bride has made herself ready. Many of you are familiar with the bride's preparations for a wedding. She doesn't, at least most of the time, simply roll out of bed and stumble down the aisle. 
There have been a couple of brides, but most of the time, right? She prepares. So it is with the church. She makes herself ready. Is that you? Are you ready to stand before Christ, your bridegroom? You might ask the question, how do I do that? How do I make myself ready? The answer is given in verse eight. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. We make ourselves ready with spirit-produced righteous deeds through faith. The Apostle Paul will often use this phrase to describe it. We walk by faith. Daily, faith-filled obedience to King Jesus and faith-filled rejection of the siren song of the city of Babylon that tries to seduce us. See, no, I won't go there to Babylon. I will live by faith. And so you show up on a Sunday morning, you listen to sermons by faith. I'm preaching this sermon by faith, trusting that the word will build the church, right? We teach by faith. We vote by faith. We live by faith. This passage is here so that by the Spirit, in faith, we will walk in righteous deeds that will shine like fine white linen on that day. This not only inspires us to do righteousness, it takes all the energy out of evil. Greed turns to generosity because the bridegroom has met our deepest need and will supply all our wants from his glorious riches. Lust gives way to contented joy in what we have because the bridegroom offers pleasures more full and free than anything Babylon has to offer. Sloth and laziness are turned to zeal for the kingdom because the bridegroom, King Jesus, summons from us our best and most diligent efforts. Perhaps, though, as you look back on this week and your life up to this point, you don't feel very ready for the wedding. You're not feeling like a bride that Jesus would joyfully receive Let me point out three little words in verse eight that you must not miss. It was granted. It was granted. It's called a divine passive. In other words, God did it, not you. God did it. He's the hero. The robe of righteousness that we wear on our glorious wedding day is the realization of our imputed blamelessness and holiness through Christ For he has redeemed us from sin's guilt and purifies us to be zealous for him. So this gown is the robe of Christ's righteousness given to us in justification. Christ takes off the filthy garments of our guilt and clothes us with the clean and beautiful clothing of his merit. His obedience is credited to us. So you feel unworthy. You are, but you can be made new. You can be made clean. You can be dressed as a spotless, pure bride, ready for Christ, her holy bridegroom, on the day of the wedding. It can be granted to you. And if by faith you are trusting in Christ, you can be humbly confident. Your bridegroom delights in your faithful, righteous deeds. Even if nobody else ever sees them or nobody else ever compliments you, or nobody else ever points them out or praises you. God delights in your faithful and righteous deeds. Thirdly and finally, we praise God for the Lord invites you to the marriage supper. The angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. 
So we praise God for he invites you to the marriage supper. John uses three phrases to emphasize this invitation. It is the true word of God. It is a reason not to worship the messenger, but the author of the message. And it is the testimony about Jesus, which is the meaning and substance of prophecy. So it's a true invitation that points us to Jesus, comes from God, and for that we praise God. God is inviting you to the marriage supper. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Who's he talking about? Is he talking about me? Is he talking about you? Think about how John's original hearers would have interpreted this. They're part of a first century, maybe early second century church. Their church is gathered together, probably under threat of persecution. And one of the church leaders stood up in front of everybody and said, we have a letter from John. And they began reading out loud. And they heard Revelation 1 in the vision of the Son of Man clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest and the hairs of his head were white like wool and his eyes were like a flame of fire and his voice was like the roar of many waters and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and they realized that this is not your veggie tales Jesus, right? This is mighty and majestic. And then they heard this Jesus speak to his seven churches. And then they heard about John's vision of the throne room in heaven. And though they were troubled by the decrees that would come from Caesar's throne in Rome, they were in far greater awe of this throne in heaven. And they saw a scroll that was sealed shut with seven seals. And they said, who has the authority to open the scroll? And nobody was found in heaven or on earth. And the scroll represented the plan and the, the, uh, all that God had in store. And they felt like it's all over. God's plan is going to be thwarted. But they found the lamb who was worthy to open the scroll and carry out the plan of God. And they heard John's vision of the seven seals that, had that held that letter shut. And each seal being broken and opened. And the seven trumpets of warning being sounded. And the seven bowls of God's wrath being poured out. And throughout these visions, they heard of the great multitude that no one could number. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb. Clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And they were given a picture of this Christ that encouraged them to endure. And then they saw that awful city Babylon. The woman, the mother of prostitutes, they saw her contrasted with the holy bride, the church. And they heard the punishment of Babylon and the marriage supper of the Lamb. And they began to realize, we will be there. We will be there. All those in Christ will be there. Friends, the Lord Jesus offers his hand in marriage to you. I want you to respond to the invitation this morning. I want you to trust in Christ. I can't tell you how this world is going to end, but I can tell you that there will be a wedding. There will be a wedding, the wedding of all time, and you're invited And the gospel demands a response from you, your RSVP. Now, you probably think that this invitation is for everyone else or anyone else, just not you. But nobody at this wedding thinks that they deserve to be there, right? Christ invites you. He earns your seat at the table. He carries you to the table. He sets the table before you. If you are in Christ, I want you to enjoy the rest and the confidence you have in Christ. We, friends, look forward to that day when Babylon will be punished, when evil's expiration date passes. And on this day, 
We feast by faith as we celebrate communion. The, day, the great declaration of this meal is that our only hope of heaven is Jesus Christ. We eat this bread and drink the cup. We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When we eat and we proclaim, Christ, you have died, you have risen, you will come again. I wanna invite you to grab that little communion cup that's near you. It should be in front of you.